love that statement, your gener generosity transforms lives, and that's the truth. And so if you've not yet supported this effort, I hope maybe before the end of the year, you'll think about what you could give to touch a world, and you will do so as you give. Of course, today represents, what, three days till Christmas. Are you ready? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm still doing some shopping. Not a smart decision on my part, but it's three days. And through the month of December, we've been trying to help you stay focused so that in the midst of all of the activity, you don't lose perspective or lose sight of what's truly being celebrated. Now, back at the start of the month, we distributed some devotional guides to kind of walk you through the season of Advent. And I hope you've been taking advantage of that. Even if you haven't and you have one, why not start the readings today? Uh, the readings kind of line up with the day of the month. Today's the 22nd, so you would read number 22 today and number 23 tomorrow. But on Christmas Eve, don't read number 24. There's actually a special uh, reading or devotional for Christmas Eve. And the same is true for Christmas Day. You'll kind of interrupt the readings, but then finish it out as you finish out the week with the additional readings that will take you on toward next Sunday. But the reason I promote the readings isn't just to give you something to do, but hopefully to kind of keep you focused. Because there's so much that distracts us, particularly as Christmas gets closer and we feel the stress and the pressure of everything we're attempting to do. If we're not careful, we'll lose sight of, now, why are we celebrating Christmas? The guide will help you be reminded of that. But also through the month of December, we've been emphasizing a series of sermons that I've entitled The Cast of Christmas where we've been looking at the different participants in the Christmas story and considering how we could learn from their example. We looked at the prophets in week one and how they were able centuries before the birth of Jesus to announce his coming. We also were able to look at the messengers, the angels, as God sent them to declare the good news to a group of shepherds out in a field. And then last week we looked at the shepherds how they were given the opportunity to actually see the Christ child and to be affected by the, the wonderful news that the angels had delivered. Well, today, as we continue the series, I want us to think about that group that's referred to as the wise men. Now, in Scripture, in the New Testament, we're really only introduced to this group at one place. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to find it in your Bible. But I don't know about you, I've always been fascinated by the wise men. Maybe it goes back to my days as a child. My mom and dad had a nativity scene that they brought out every year at Christmas. And, and the wise men in this nativity scene were especially impressive. I mean, they kind of stood out, the way they looked. They, I was fascinated by the wise men. Well, as we come to this part of our series, I have to acknowledge I'm still impressed by them. I think there's something that we can learn from them. Now, what does the Bible have to say about them? Truthfully, not a whole lot. Uh, if you look at how much detail is given. In fact, let's look at how they're described for us 
in the book of Matthew. I'm going to begin reading with verse 1. And we're going to just walk through this. I'll make some comments as we move through the passage so that you can appreciate what's unfolding. But listen to how they're introduced. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, now that's a word to say no. This is something of note. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying... Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. In the opening two verses, we're introduced to this group we call the wise men. Now, who are they? What do we actually know about them? I have to admit to you, a lot of legend has developed around this group. I mean, part of the legend suggests that there were three of them, right? Uh, you need to look in the text, no numbers given. There could have been three, could have been seven, could have been 12. I don't know how many. It, it speaks in the plural. There was a group of so-called wise men. Now, the legend actually expanded. They were not only identified to be three, much later they were given names. Maybe you've heard them, Caspar and Melchior and Belteshar. I mean, there's these elaborate stories surrounding each of them that in no way is found in Scripture. Just stories were developed later on. And I'm not trying to kind of burst anyone's illusions about this group. They're even referred to as kings which the text doesn't suggest that. Uh, maybe they thought as kings because they presented wealthy gifts, and maybe it's because there were three gifts. The conclusion is that there were three wise men. But the text doesn't say any of that. So what do we know? Well, we might know a little bit about the term that is used. Sometimes they're referred to as the magi. Have you ever heard that expression used? That's based upon the Greek text in the New Testament, it's the word magoi, which isn't so much a term that's translated wise men as much as it's referring to a historical group. See, the magoi, if you look at what history informs us, apparently was a group of, of scholars, priestly scholars, that go all the way back to the Medo-Persian Empire. A Greek historian by the name of Herodotus refers to the Magi in the 5th century B.C. And just to add a little more detail, the Magi are referred to in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Remember, Daniel was carried off into exile, and he was surrounded by so-called scholars and experts that served uh, the ruler of Babylon, and the Magi are mentioned there. Now, to me, that's notable because how did they become aware of one who would be born in Judea? I don't think it's outside the realm of probability that Daniel introduced six centuries earlier the prophecies of God concerning one who would be born in Judea, who would actually be one who would affect the world. And as I can try to envision this, now with the birth of Jesus, God himself has 
communicated both in the heavens and perhaps even more directly with this scholarly priestly group revealing to them that this child has been born. And they travel from the east a great distance. Some conclude that they travel months, maybe as long as a year, to reach Jerusalem in search of the child. Now, as they entered the city, they begin asking the question, where is he? Let's go back to the text, verse 2, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And what may be lost in our English translation is how that verb saying is expressed. It actually meant that he, they were saying it and they were constantly saying it. They enter the city. They don't know where the child is. So apparently wherever they went, they were asking, where's the child? With the presumption that of all people, that the inhabitants of Jerusalem would know where the child is. But they didn't. Now, Herod, who was the ruler at the time, became aware that the Magi were here. He was aware of their reputation, and he wants to know what's going on. And so Matthew informs us, verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. I talked for a moment about uh, the wise men. Let's talk about Herod because I think some sometimes get confused because when you read the Bible, there seems to be a number of Herods mentioned. And that's true. Uh, we're followers of Jesus. If you read the story of Jesus, you know just before his death, he appears before Herod. You should realize that's not the Herod we're talking about here. It's actually his son, Herod Antipas. The Herod that's being referred to in Matthew 2 sometimes goes by the designation Herod the Great. I suspect he added that designation for himself. Now, just so you know who is he, Caesar Augustus appointed Herod to be the king of the Jews over the area of Galilee and Judea. And the reason Augustus conferred that upon Herod is because he had been instrumental in bringing peace into that region during a very difficult time. And so it was kind of a reward to Herod that he would be given the title King of the Jews. He was a politically savvy man. He maneuvered to secure power for himself. And he wanted to leave behind a reputation. Uh, you may not know this about Herod the Great, but he spent a lot of time and energy and money constructing various uh, sites. He's the one that actually constructed the temple or funded it, the temple in Jerusalem. It was more than likely the most elaborate temple that the nation of Israel have ever had. Well, Herod the Great was the one who funded that. Those of you that have traveled to the Holy Land, there's a fortress called Masada, which uh, was designed to, to provide a, a level of, of protection against invaders. Well, it was Herod the Great that constructed Masada. See, he wanted to leave a, a testimony, a reputation. But the thing about Herod that you need to also know in the first century historians inform us of this. He was a man that also had a level of paranoia. Uh, having been given the title King of the Jews, he was constantly fearful that someone was going to usurp his throne. 
I'm not making that up. Uh, he married 10 wives. His second wife, Maryam, was accused of kind of scheming against him, and so he put her to death. And for good measure, he killed her mom as well. And just to make very sure that someone wouldn't secure his throne, he killed her two sons, his two sons, because he viewed them as a threat. See, that's how he lived his life. He was constantly looking over his shoulder, fearing someone's going to come and, and try to take what he considered to be rightfully his. That explains his reaction in the Gospel of Matthew when these wise men are going around the city of Jerusalem and say, where's the child that was born, the king of the Jews? I mean, he must have been alarmed. And again, go back to the text. They were saying, um, where is he? He's been born the king of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. That's a weak word. He, I think, was utterly disturbed. His greatest fear in his mind was potentially now being realized. And because of his prominence, all of Jerusalem shared the concern. And he then assembles, verse 4, all the chief priests and scribes of the people. And he inquired of his religious scholars where the Christ was to be born. Now that's interesting. The wise men ask, where's the king of the Jews? Herod goes to his religious uh, experts and he says, now, where is the Christ, the promised one, going to be born? Herod was informed enough to know the prophets of old had pointed to the birth of one who would come. And with the arrival of the wise men, Herod was putting one and one together. He was concluding, this must be the Christ. And so he asked the chief priest and the scribes, the theologians of his day, now, what can you tell me about this child? Where will he be born? Verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago. The prophet Micah, 600 years before Jesus was born, announced that he would be born of all places in Bethlehem. In fact, they cite Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people uh, Israel. So they deliver the message. Well, it's in Bethlehem, king. Herod then summons the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for this child. And when you found him, Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, given his track record, how many believe his intention was to worship? I mean, when I was a child, uh, there was an expression, liar, liar, pants on fire. I mean, I never understood the expression, but he could not be lying any more than what he reveals to the wise men, that I want to worship this child. Tell me where he is. No. He wanted to squelch another usurper in his mind. 
The wise men, though, were informed of that. Then listen, the text describes what what occurs. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them. It seems as if this light now is moving went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. It's only fair as we consider the wise men that we talk at least for a moment about the star. What in the world is that? Some, as they look at this part of the story, are a little unsettled. Oh, this seems like it's not probable that something like this could happen. They even tried to give natural explanations for it. And some scholars would suggest, you know, it's this conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter. It comes together, and that's what this priestly group of scholars observe in the heavens that drive them then on to Jerusalem. Or if it's not that, maybe it's, it's like a comet, Halley's Comet. Maybe something like that happened, and they're just being affected by what would have been an otherwise natural phenomenon. Well, what if... It's just something miraculous. Is it inconceivable that God, to accentuate the significance of the birth of the Son of God, would do something in the heavens that would call attention to his birth that was strictly miraculous? Remember when we looked at the the account in Luke 2 about the shepherds, and as the angel appeared, it said, the glory of the Lord... Filled, or filled the heavens. It, it was, there was a glory manifest as the angel delivered the announcement. Stay with me. What if what the wise men observed as far away as distant Babylon observed in the heavens the glory of God manifest in a miraculous kind of way? What if? And though the angels departed, the glory of God in the heavens remained and it got their attention. And they were aware of the prophecies concerning one who would be born there, and so they set their sights on Jerusalem, the capital. Reaching Jerusalem, it's obvious the child is in Jerusalem. He's in Bethlehem. Well, what if the glory that God manifests miraculously, I have no problem with allowing for that possibility that suddenly what was revealed in the heavens began to move in such a way that the priestly magi could find their way specifically to where they needed to be. The star, you see, was God's way of bringing them to the place where they would encounter the child that was born. Well, returning to the story, verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary. Let me pause there. I mentioned as a boy, the nativity scene, putting the wise men there. I don't, again, I don't want to burst anyone's illusion. More than likely, the wise men didn't find the Christ child in the manger. Uh, Matthew 2 says, after he was born, They came to Jerusalem. The verse I just read refers to them not being in a cattle stall, but actually being in a house. Uh, 
Some time has passed, in other words, probably months, maybe even a year. And they find Jesus in this house with Mary. And, and as Matthew describes it, they see the child and they fell down and worshiped him. Now, let me help you appreciate uh, Mary and Joseph were poor by the standards of first century Galilee. They had very little. The environment in which they were now residing, as they were waiting probably for the census to be completed, was, was humble at best. And here are these magi, experts, scholars, probably people of wealth, entering into this small, unimpressive setting, and they see a mother that probably looked just like a, any ordinary Jewish girl and a child that didn't have a glow around us. It was just a child from a physical point of view. But as they enter into the room, they find themselves in awe. And they bow down. And they worship the child. And not only worship him. As they worshiped, it says they opened their treasures and they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Can't even imagine what Joseph and Mary were thinking. It's a holy moment. Verse 12 as they departed, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. That's all we have of the Magi. That's the end of their story. What do we learn from this? Can we talk about it probably every December we refer to them as part of the Christmas account, appropriately so, but honestly, what do we learn from this, if anything? I mean, I've talked history. History doesn't affect my life. What do we learn from the Magi? Well, I would have us, maybe instead of focusing on them exclusively, I would have us think about how this story seems to reveal three responses to the birth of Jesus. Three, not just one. Three. I mean, think about it. You had opposition to Jesus, right? As represented by Herod. And his opposition was severe. When the wise men did not send word back to him where Jesus was, you know what he decided to do? You can read the rest of chapter 2. He mobilized some of his forces to go into Bethlehem and he instructed them to put to death every male child two years of age or younger. Now he's trying to calculate how long the star had been in the heavens, but to be safe, he said two years or younger. He brutalized Bethlehem out of his fear of losing control. Opposition could not be seen in a more horrific way. So you see opposition. But there's a group, and I just kind of passed by it, but 
it's somewhat stunning to me when you look at the reaction of the chief priest and the scribes. Herod asked them, where's the Christ child to be born? These wise men have come announcing his birth. What does the scripture say? They go and find that Micah says, well, he'll be born in Bethlehem. They deliver that to Herod, who then passes it on to the wise men. And, and yet, this is stunning. Those who would know the most about the significance of Jesus' birth seem to do the least. There's no reaction described. I mean, Bethlehem is what, five and a half miles south of Jerusalem? If they, out of curiosity, wanted to see for themselves, they could have. But they did nothing, which to me embodies indifference at its worst, doesn't it? Apathy? I mean, they had been waiting for centuries for the child to be born. Remember when we talked about the shepherds last week, the angel didn't tell them to go and see Jesus where he was, but they went. The chief priest and the theologians of their day did nothing. It's like, okay. And they just went on. Obviously, the response that should appeal to our hearts is the response of the wise men. What was their response? It was wholehearted worship, right? They see the child. The text says, very descriptive. They see the child. They fell down and worshiped him. It wasn't just a mental acknowledgement. This is amazing. It resulted in a physical act where they humbled themselves before this one that they perceived to be and recognized to be of great value and worth. Now, how much they grasped the significance of Jesus' birth, we don't know. But they knew enough to realize that the most appropriate response was for them to worship Jesus Christ. And they did. I mean, a few weeks back, we were in John 4, where Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman about worship. And he, he explained to her that true worshipers will ultimately worship God in spirit and truth. Spirit be with the wholeness of heart, the wholeness of one who, who one is. And truth meaning that you're responding wholeheartedly to the revelation that God has made known. Well, the wise men had come to be come to understand that God has revealed in the birth of this child something so significant that they had no choice but to worship. And they did. And they brought gifts to honor him. They brought gold. Some would say that's the gift fitting a king. They brought Frankincense, which is a, a costly incense that typically is associated with priesthood. But then they brought myrrh. Now that's the one that's somewhat baffling. Because you see, myrrh in that day was largely used for the purpose of preparing a body for burial. Now, I've attended a few baby 
showers through the years, and I love to see the gifts that are brought. I've never seen anyone bring embalming fluid. I mean, that's absurd. You don't do that. So what's going on here? How much did they understand the significance of this one that was born? I think, as some have noted, it seems as if they recognized that the significance involved more than simply the life that he would live. It also included the death that he would suffer. They presented to him myrrh. They worshipped. Now, I, again, wanted us to spend time together this Sunday before Christmas focusing on the wise men because I think probably in this story they especially are pointing us in the right direction as Christmas approaches. They're trying to encourage us to respond appropriately. Will we? I mean, okay. What about us? What about you? What is our response to what we know? What is your response to what you know? Now let's think about the different responses in the story. I'm going to assume that none of you here are going to respond in opposition. The fact that you're here gives me a pretty good indication you're not opposed to Jesus. And so I'm going to assume as Christmas approaches, none of us are going to be opposing Jesus at all. But there are some in our culture that do. They won't no mention of Jesus at this time of year, do they? I know some would say there's a war on Christmas. I don't know that there's so much a war on Christmas. Uh, Pew Research uh, back at the end of 2017 did a broad survey. And you know what they discovered? They discovered that 90% of Americans celebrate Christmas. Nine out of ten. Uh, that's not a war on Christmas. That's an indication overwhel overwhelmingly Americans celebrate Christmas rather than oppose it. I guess, however, that statistic does help us to understand the 10% that do not celebrate Christmas are they're pretty outspoken in the fact that they don't. They don't want Jesus or Christmas mentioned. And so like Herod, though they're not violent in their opposition, they want nothing to do with Jesus. Again, I don't think that's you. Obviously, you're here. But what about the response of the religious in that day? What about the indifferent? Could that describe you? Now, in the Pew Research, they also revealed that of the 90% that celebrate Christmas, 51% of them do so without any religious correlation at all. In other words, they're not celebrating Jesus and his birth. They're just celebrating the cultural event that we call Christmas. 51% would describe themselves in that way. So they are totally indifferent to Jesus. Don't care about it at all. But as I've thought about that, my concern is, is it possible, even as we've been gathering on Sundays, pre preparing ourselves for the celebration, is it possible that we will approach 
Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and actually prove to be indifferent toward Jesus? Now, we're going to go to the services because that's what we do, right? But it's really not going to affect who we are or how we respond. We'll just attend without response. That's called indifference. I mean, what's really the purpose? No, I think we have provided for us an example with the Magi, the wise men, an example of what should be the appropriate response as we come face to face with the realization that God has provided for us a child who is the Savior of the world. That we should, like the Magi of old, we should worship him. And please, let me stress, that's more than attending a service. That's descriptive of you responding within your heart to the truth of who he is. As Christmas becomes so commonplace that our minds have become numb to the extraordinary wonder of wonders that God himself has entered into the brokenness of this world so that he could restore our very lives. And he did so by being born in the most humble of ways in Bethlehem. I think the appropriate reaction, if we know this to be true, would be to join the Magi and to bow down in, in awe and to worship him, to present to him that which would honor him? What will be our response? What will be yours? Let me pray for us. Dear God, I come to you in the name of Jesus, thankful that we have in Scripture this testimony. You revealed the wonder of Jesus' birth to a group of Gentiles hundreds of miles away so that they might come to worship the child that was born. Speak to our hearts from their example. Help us to appreciate the wonder of that which we talk and sing and speak. If our hearts have drifted toward indifference, would you awaken in us just a fresh longing to worship, to respond to the truth of what his birth is all about? Even in these remaining moments, would you stir within us an awareness that Jesus came for our sake? Help us to worship. In spirit and truth, help us to worship him. I ask in Jesus' name.